If you would uh, bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to look at those passages that we read just a second ago in, in uh, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. But let's pray first. God, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for the time that we have together. We thank you for your word, that it is living and active, that it is eternal, that it is life-giving, uh, that as we come to your word, that you meet us, and it's, that as we hear your word read, we hear your voice speaking. And so we thank you for the truth, that you've, you've preserved it for us, that you teach us through it. We pray this morning that as we open your word, that you would reveal our hearts, that you would show us the truth, that you would apply it to us. Uh, as we confess each week when we open your word, we cannot do this on our own. So we ask that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide, that you would be the one that illuminates our hearts and our minds, that applies the truth of your word to us, that you would show us exactly what you would have for us, and that we would just uh, leave here having seen you more clearly in all your majesty and all your glory. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I read uh, several articles this week, and it was kind of almost by accident. I was just reading different headlines, and a lot of it ended up kind of coming into this sermon as I was thinking about it. And in the articles that I kept coming up, I guess there was a study done recently because a lot of people were writing articles around kind of the same study. And it was a study that was just done recently that talked about uh, stress and fear and anxiety as related to an election year. Uh, and what they were saying and what the findings were is they were just saying that, that we end up having more stress and more anxiety, more fear uh, in an election year because we're just inundated with this constantly. And so they were making all sorts of uh, different uh, drawing, different lines about part of it being the 24 hour news cycle being inundated with this over and over. Part of it is people are talking about it a lot. Part of it, as it grows closer uh, to the time, as we get closer to Election Day, it just intensifies. And so all these different reasons and all these different things that were coming out. But uh, what it said, though, is one of the reasons is we end up, as we get closer and as it intensifies, we start to speak in more and more extreme ways. Uh, a lot of times we end up kind of summarizing things like, if my person is not elected, then this will be the end of whatever. And I've heard that a lot lately. If this happens, then it's going to be really, really bad. and It'll never be the same again. And we start to speak in those terms and in those ways at different times. Uh, if this person's not elected, all of this will fall apart or the nation will never be the same. And uh, I'm actually getting to the age where I'm old enough to remember. Uh, yeah, everybody said that four years ago. And they said that the eight years ago and 12 years ago. And, and we continue to do the same thing and have the same cycles and as I was thinking about that and just reading those those different articles and uh, the way we discuss it, it, it brought up some interesting points on why we get into that. Uh, one of the points was when we get around people who agree with us and we talk about it, that it intensifies our feelings and then it becomes and seems more dire. Uh, we kind of feed off of each other. That's part of it. But I think I personally believe it's going back to an article or, or something uh, Alistair McGrath wrote years ago. Uh, Alistair McGrath is a theologian and a, an apologist, uh, a historian. He's a brilliant, brilliant Christian apologist. And I think it gets to some of the spiritual issues of some of the fear and anxiety and struggles that we feel as we go through an election cycle. And Alistair McGrath said this, and I'm just, I'm, I'm really, I'm not quoting him directly, but I'm kind of summarizing what he says. But what Alistair McGrath, the main idea of what he puts forward is this, is that we will transcendentalize something as the ultimate problem so that we can then seek to fix it and it makes us feel better about ourselves. And so what he says is we'll transcendentalize certain things within our culture as the problem 
and then we will make a politician or political party or an ideology as the answer. And so when we do that, when we put those in those terms, when our person doesn't get elected, it seems detrimental. It seems like, oh, no, it's all going to fall apart because this was the problem and they were the answer. And what politicians have done is they're smart enough to know and capitalize on this. They do this and they put themselves in that. Only I can fix this. Here's the issues and only I can do it. And so they talk that way and it gets uh, over and over kind of said that way. And so we begin to feel the weight of that. And we hear that over and over. But the issue I think that we come to as a spiritual one is we transcendentalize something other than sin as the problem. And we've transcendentalized something other than God as the solution. And we run into all sorts of problems when we do that. And so this morning, what I want us to look at is Revelation 4 and 5. It's a vision that God gives to the Apostle John. He opens up and shows him the throne room of God in heaven. And he shows him the reality of what's actually going on behind the scenes of everything we see in the world. Kind of pulls it back and John gets to see this picture. Now, I, I picked this passage uh, a couple of months ago because we we're going to do two weeks on the songs we sing. And so I picked Revelation 4 and 5 because we're going to sing in a minute uh, before the throne of God above. And then we're going to sing a Revelation song, which comes directly from these passages. And so this was part of that series. But as I got into it, I said, man, there is so much here to speak directly to where we are right now in our nation, in our world and the things that are going on. And not only will it help kind of flesh out the songs that we sing and the theology behind them, but I think it speaks directly to the, the fear and the anxiety and the stress that we feel during this time. And so here's what I want us to look at in Revelation 4 and 5. Three simple, straightforward points that are presented here. First, God holds the destiny of the world in his hand. God holds the destiny of the world in his hand. Secondly, apart from Jesus, we are completely and totally hopeless. Apart from Jesus, we are completely and totally hopeless. But the last part where we're going to end is there is hope because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so I want us to look at that and it will speak directly to some of the things I think the fears and the struggles that we we feel and we 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 go through right now. And in this time and in this place and where we are in our history and everything that's swirling around that. And so let's look at what God's word says. So start with me in Revelation chapter four. And so this is this image of the throne room of God. And it says in verse five of chapter four. From the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. By the way, that, that verse five and the end of verse four are directly in the song Revelation song that we're going to sing in just a minute. But we didn't make those words up. They come directly from God's word. But you start to see this awesome picture. And before the throne in verse six, there was a, uh, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind and the living creatures like a lion, the second like an ox, the third living creature with the face of the man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, 
Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. I want you just to look at the big picture of what it's showing us and what God's teaching us as he shows John this vision of what's happening in the throne room of God. Now, when we get into Revelation and maybe uh, you've studied it, maybe you've spent no time there, maybe you're scared of Revelation. I know a lot of people do that. They're just like, I don't get that book at all. I don't really understand what's going on. It's highly symbolic. It's an apocalyptic vision that God gives to John, and it's filled with symbolism all the way through. And so sometimes you can read it and go, what in the world? Four creatures and seven spirits and eyes and wings and all these things. And you can get bogged down in those details and miss the big picture of what's happening here. For example, it talks about 24 elders on 24 thrones and they're bowing down and what's happening. You go, well, what in the world? And we can get kind of lost in the forest for the trees when we start to think about it. Most scholars will say that the 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel and then the 12 apostles. Or another way of saying of all God's people of the old covenant and the new covenant before the throne worshiping Jesus. Worshiping the Father as it is right here. And I don't want us to get caught up in those details, although they're important and they're good for us to think about. But I want us to see exactly what it's saying and what it's bringing us to. And I think the main point that you get in chapter four is this awesome picture of the throne room of God and the worship that exists there continually forever. And when you look at the words that they're saying and what they're telling us and what they're bringing out, like you see in verse eight, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. And they give honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. It says that God is on his throne as he's been from all eternity and to all eternity he will be. He's the God that's always been reigning and ruling. And there he is on his throne in the middle with all this praise and worship continually happening. And you start to see the picture of God's eternal nature. And you see that clearly as you read through that passage. And I want you to think about that for just a second, what that actually means. Or verse 11, when it says, Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. And you look around the world and you look at what's happening with nations, with elections, with the things that we let cloud our judgment to the point that we're fearful and we're struggling and we're anxious. And what this says is that God created every single one of them and they exist because he says so. And the whole time he's been on his throne and the whole time he will be on his throne. And it gives you a picture of when we get so taken with what's happening right in front of us, it's to zoom back and see the eternality of God and the way he sees it. And it changes our perspective. Or it should. When we see the word of God in the midst of this. And so we see this picture of God on his throne, the eternal one who created all things, who all people exist because God graciously allows for them to exist. But then you get to chapter five and it says, then I saw on the right hand of him seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And as you read through Revelation, they begin to open the scroll and what happens and what unfolds is what we see is the scroll is God's plan for redemption. The beautiful picture of all that God will do throughout all eternity and God holds it in his hand. 
Not only has he always been on his throne and will always be on his throne, not only is he the one who creates and holds all things into existence, in his hand he holds his grand purposes for redemption. And there God sits. And he holds the scroll in his hand. God is completely sovereign over all human history. God holds the destiny of the world in his hand. And so when we say things like, oh no, if this happens, all will be lost. See God going, uh, excuse me, what? We've, we've missed the truth of who God is. He holds the destiny of the world in his hand. Now, when we hear that, there's a couple ways we can miss this. We can take that and then make some false uh, uh, summaries or, or, or uh, coming out of that. For example, we can say, well, God is sovereign over all things, so we can kind of do whatever we want. We can downplay man's responsibility because God's sovereign, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. It says that we have real choices with real consequences and God's allowed us to be part of his plan and what he's doing. And so when we go to that extreme and we go, God's sovereign and it doesn't matter, I'll do whatever I want. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what God's word tells us. Now, the good news is that God allows us to be part with real choices, with real consequences, have real effects, but they will not ultimately frustrate the plans of God. Thank God that is true. That he's sovereign over all of it, that he holds the destiny of the world in his hands. Now, when we say that, that we have real choices with real consequences, God allows us to be part. We're involved in that. Then we can go to another extreme. And say, well, God needs us then to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. He needs me to step up and do this so that it happens. No, he doesn't. Again, thankfully, wonderfully, it's not dependent on me. Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand is made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. There's nothing we can build or do or create that God needs from us because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. And when we put ourselves in that position, what we've done is we've replaced ourselves from God being the center of all things and made ourselves the center of all things. And that's where all the fear and anxiety and struggle comes because we've put put ourselves in a place that we were never meant to with to to take or to hold. And so it's not that God needs our help, it's that God graciously allows us to be part of it. You know what the next part of Isaiah 66 says? He says, I don't need anything from you. I've hold all things together by my hands. I'm the one that does all of it, but then he says this. He says, But this is the one to whom I will look. You know what he says? The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. And the way he uses us is that when we respond to him in humility and we tremble at the word of God and rely on what he says. And he graciously allows us to be part of the things that he's bringing together in his beautiful picture of redemption that he has. 
And so we see this picture that God is sovereign. The ultimate destiny of the world is in his hands. And so when we think about that picture and the ways that we get so upset over the things that are happening, and if this doesn't happen, and if this doesn't happen, and then this, it's like we're mocking who God is and what he's told us in his word. He is sovereignly in control of all things, thankfully, wonderfully. It doesn't excuse our part in it, but it also helps us to rest that it's not ultimately dependent on us what God's going to do, thankfully. Second part here. Apart from Jesus, man in and of himself, by ourselves in our sinful nature, is completely and totally hopeless. Look at what it says, verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him, seated on a throne, a scroll written and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The scroll in God's hand, the vision or the picture of his perfect redemption for all history. And the angel proclaims who can take it from his hand and open the scroll. Who can bring God's redemption? And the angel cries out, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And the answer is no one. Silence. The silence is deafening. The silence is a witness to man's sinfulness before a holy God. No one can take the scroll from his hand. And that's the picture that's there. No one can do it. Through one man, sin entered the world, sin spread to all men, all men have sinned. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are separated from a holy, perfect God because of our sin and our rebellion against him. And the idea that we can bring redemption to this broken creation in and of ourselves is ridiculous. And the silence says that. Who can open the scroll? And John looks and sees there's no one and he begins to weep. John sees so clearly man's sinfulness before a holy God and he weeps. And it says he begins to weep loudly. We can't do it in and of ourselves. Redemption in and of ourselves will never come in that way. So I want to make a couple of applications to that. We look at our world and we say, if this person is not elected, we're doomed. Pretty sure that's not the answer. Pretty sure there's no one running for president right now that can take the scroll from the hand of God and bring redemption. We're so sure that it's comical. But that's the picture. And yet we begin to think and talk that way. 
No human institution, no person, no government, no nation is ever going to fix the issues that plague society or any of it. Not the, not the deep down foundational issues. None of it. And yet we often act that way as if it will. Like it's an all or nothing proposition that this will do it. And when we do that, we are putting our hope in something that cannot do what we're hoping it will do. And you know what comes from that? Fear and anger and disappointment and division. We're putting our hope in something that can't do what we hope it will do. Revival, redemption, all those things that we long for as believers that Jesus alone can bring. And then we pretend like it's going to come through a political party or a man or a Congress or a Supreme Court or any of those. It's not happening. And the silence is there. But I want you to think more deeply than just that with what John says and what happens here. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one can stand before a holy God on their own merits. No one in the throne room of the creator God who has always existed walks up and says, I can do it and takes the scroll from his hand. Isaiah in Isaiah 6 gets a similar vision and he falls on his face and he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And that's what John sees so clearly and he weeps loudly because in and of ourselves we are hopelessly lost and we cannot do it. Redemption is impossible through man-made means. That includes religion. That includes when we think by being a good person and going to church and doing some things and checking some boxes that we'll be able to stand before a holy God and take the scroll from his hand. It's not going to happen. And John sees that so clearly and he weeps loudly. And I think the reason he weeps loudly is he sees so clearly the ends when we try that. When we try to stand before God on our own merits, Jesus says very clearly that we will stand before him and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And Jesus talks more about this than anyone else in the entire scripture. He gives us this picture very vividly of what it means to be put away from God's presence for eternity. That none of us can measure up to the holiness of God. And that when we try to do it, the ends of that is a place that Jesus describes as eternal fire and punishment. Of gloomy darkness. Of being cast into the outer darkness where there's gnashing of teeth. Where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. Where it is better to gouge out your hand or gouge out your eye or to cut off your hand than to have your whole body thrown in there. Do not fear the one who kills the body, but the one who can cast your soul into hell. 
Those are Jesus' words. And he sees so clearly here as John stands before a holy God that none of us can approach God in and of ourselves and what we've done. And he weeps loudly. To misunderstand that we can stand before God by what we do is to misunderstand God's holiness and who he is. I read this week, 64% of people in America believe they will go to heaven and less than 1% believe they will go to hell. That is a misunderstanding of the holiness of God. And so when I think about this passage and I look at it and I go, man, we put our hope in ourselves in those things and I think that's valid. But greater than that, the implications of when we look at this is John weeps loudly. You're going to leave here today and you're going to spend time with friends and family and co-workers and neighbors and people this week. You're going to pass them and you're going to talk to them and you're going to spend time with them. And so many of them, if Jesus were returned today, would be cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. And so I need to ask this question. I want you to think about this deeply. In this past year, in 2016, have you spent more time talking about who will be elected the next president or about your King Jesus, the only one that can save you from what John sees here? And then I would ask you, where is your hope? What are you clinging to day by day? Is it that God is on his throne And he's going to do what he's going to do and he's allowed us to be part of it. Or is it trying to take that back from him? Putting our hope that some man can grab the scroll and fix all these things because that's not happening. We are hopelessly lost in and of ourselves apart from Jesus and we desperately need a savior. And so John weeps loudly. But there is hope. Thankfully, that's not where this ends. And so verse four, John weeps loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I want you to think about that. The vision that John sees and the, the fullness of everything he's taking in. And then the elders step forward and they say there is one that can open the seals. There's one that's done it. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Think about the imagery that would come into John's mind. The lion, the king, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the eternal king promised to David. John would know all this and see this. But then he turns and in verse six in between the throne And the four living creatures and among the elders, instead of seeing a lion, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp 
and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and your blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. There's no one that can take the scroll except the lamb who was slain. And as John looks, expecting to see a lion, and then he turns and he sees a slain lamb, it's a picture of Jesus' sacrifice for us. The only way that we can stand before a holy God, the only way that we can come before the throne of God above is by what Jesus has done and nothing else. In and of ourselves, we will never be worthy, but Jesus has done what we could never do for us. The perfect, spotless lamb came and took our place, took his, our sin upon himself that we could stand before God perfectly and spotless by his blood that takes our sins and restores us to God. And that's the picture that John sees. And the 24 elders representing all of God's people fall down and worship. They fall down before the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals. And by your blood, you've ransomed people for God. It's our only hope. What Jesus has done and who he is. And so we often forget the picture that's here. John easily could have expected to see the lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. There's this one, the lion. And he turns and it's a slain lamb. I want you to think about the way God redeems us. The way God brings redemption and brings us back to himself. He comes and he lives the life we've never lived. And he dies the death we should have deserved. And as we as people hang him on the cross and crucify him and reject him, he cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. God's redemption comes through Jesus coming and humbling self and taking the form of a servant and doing what we could never do for us. Forgiving us, offering us grace, showing us that picture of what God is like, does it the exact way, opposite way that we think it should be done or the way we would expect it to be done. But yet we often remove God from the center and go back to following people that look like lions. The people that want to rule with an iron fist and I'm the answer and I will fix it and I will do this. That's not the way God works. And so Jesus does what we could never do for us. He lays his life down. He says, do your worst. And then he defeats death, conquers the grave and restores us to a relationship with the father. Our hope is not in a man. No man can do it. Our hope is in Jesus alone and what he has done. It's the glorious picture that God shows us in Revelation 4 and 5. He saves us from the pit of hell that we deserve. By grace, through faith. And so look at what happens at the end, verse 11. And then I look and I heard around the throne... The living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, 
Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. Every knee shall bow to our King Jesus. And so God allows us to be part of what he's doing. But make no mistake, our ultimate hope is in the slain lamb. is in what Jesus is going to do. And God allows us to be part of it. There's this beautiful picture there in verse 9. It says there are golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. But God responds to the prayers of his people. The good news of Revelation, for all the things that are hard to understand and all the things we struggle with, the good news of Revelation is that Jesus has already won. And that God is on his throne and he will forever be on his throne. That doesn't mean we don't care about what's happening in our world. It doesn't mean that you don't get involved. It doesn't mean that you don't talk about those things. But it does mean that our hope is ultimately only ever found in Jesus. And we need to be reminded of that fact together over and over again. And so we're going to stand and sing these two songs together in just a moment. Let me pray for us before I do. But just hear the words from these two songs, just a brief from both. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. With creation, I sing praise to the King of kings. You are my everything and I will adore you. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Savior, with Christ my Savior and my God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of who you are and what you've done. I pray that we would see that our hope rests in you and who you are. I pray that you give us opportunities to proclaim that this week, that we do it with great humility and grace, with kindness and meekness. I pray in the midst of the craziness of our time, of election seasons, of wanting to put our hope in other things, that our hope would be rooted and grounded in you and you alone. That you give us opportunities to to show what you're like and the way we respond to people in the midst of all these things. We thank you as you tell us that you hear the prayers of your saints. You hear the prayers of your peoples, that you respond to them, and for that we thank you. And so we ask that you would do a mighty work in our land, that it would come through the gracious good news of who you are and what you've done in all things. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.